Trip Alper and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, is our managing editor, Dave Cameron. In what follows, that same Dave Cameron, as per usual, analyzes all baseball. Specifically, the sort of baseball he analyzes this week concerns trades, trade value, and the impending trade deadline. Building off work by our own Jesse Wolfersberger and Sabre president Vince Gennaro, Cameron's written a piece for Monday afternoon which concerns how the addition of a second wild card might impact the strategy that teams take at the trade deadline. We look at how this affects teams like the A's and the Tampa Bay Rays, who are within striking distance of playoff eligibility, and other teams like the Nationals and the Rangers that have better odds at winning their respective divisions. Cameron and I uh, go on to consider his trade value series, not only the most highly ranked players on it, including Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, and Andrew McCutcheon, but also which players surprised Cameron, either because of uh, how highly or lowly they were ranked. Finally, I force Cameron to discuss Daniel Straley, that is, Oakland right-handed pitching prospect Daniel Straley, who has come out of relative obscurity and established himself as one of the best pitchers currently in the minor leagues. It's Fangraphs Audio, features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. I want to. We could talk maybe more in depth about the trade value stuff in a second. But um, there, you you actually just posted this afternoon. This is Monday. You just posted this afternoon um, uh, a, a uh, an article on the effects of the second wild card on the degree to which teams should or should not be, uh, I guess, aggressively pursuing or how aggressively they, they should be pursuing that second wild card spot. Or I guess either of the wild card spots, um, but this goes back. I think it starts to some degree with the piece that Jeffy uh, Jesse Wolfsberger did last week on how uh, the second wild card spot affects playoff probability. Yeah, I mean this is something I've been thinking about for a while, and Jeffy's piece certainly helped, uh, you know, crystallize some of the concepts and you know show it in chart form the changing marginal value of the win. But uh, you know, I really like the changes they've made in the addition of the second wild card, mostly because of how it really emphasizes winning your division again. I mean, we've seen in prior years where, you know, two teams were neck and neck for the division, and at the end of the year they were resting their starters, and they just didn't really care because it didn't matter whether you won the division or you won the wild card. As long as you got in the playoffs, that's, you know, that was good enough, and how you got there didn't really matter. Your seed didn't really matter. Now the, the seeding and winning your division matters an awful lot. Because I think, uh, you know, what we're going to see is that teams, you know, like Tampa Bay, I think is a good example. You know, they're shopping James Shields around. There's been talk they might trade Ben Zobrist. Uh, you know, they're 49 and 47 and only like two games out of the wild card. Um, but they're not really, uh, a team that should be buying because they're, you know, nine games out of the division. They have very little chance of catching the Yankees. Uh, and, you know, for them to go out and trade prospects, uh, which are the lifeblood of their system, you know, cheap young players, they get into a one game playoff to have a chance to then, you know, play in the division series if they win that game without their best pitcher and, you know, with a wrecked travel schedule. It's just not worth it. Right, so the previous model dictated, and, and um, I guess this this also uh, another piece off of which you were um, sort of uh, basing uh, this afternoon's post was one by Vince Gennaro over uh, his new blog, um, and Vince was talking about how it changes the degree to which teams ought to pursue that's, uh, um, the playoffs, where it, the, the model used to be that 
any playoff berth was an excellent playoff berth, and there and you should pursue it as hard as possible if you were within sort of reasonable distance at the trade deadline. Um, but that that has changed, and there's sort of this middle ground where if you get it, that's great, but it but giving up everything um, for that for the wild card spot. Uh, is not uh, does not um, remain the strategy the best case uh, sort of the strategy one ought to pursue or team ought to pursue. Yeah, I mean what we basically used to see is that the marginal value of wins like 89, 90, 91 were extremely high. I mean you could argue that they were worth you know between like three and four million dollars a piece based on expected potential playoff revenues and what those wins did for your playoff probability curve. So uh, you know getting from that 88 to 92 win mark was enormous, and any team on the bubble should be willing to give up you know top prospects even for rentals uh, to try and get themselves from win 88 to win 92 and get themselves into the playoffs. Because, you know, as we've seen with the Rangers a couple of years ago, they went from bankruptcy to powerhouse with one World Series appearance. And, you know, the fans came rushing back and they started making money hand over fist. And if you can get to the World Series or win a World Series, it can do tremendous things for your franchise. So um, now I think the, you know, the marginal value of the wins is probably like 92, 93, 94. It's the ones that push you from being the wild card into the division winner and not from being a non-contender into the wild card. So the team you mentioned is the A's. And the A's... We can we can talk about the A's later, uh, just to exactly how and why they've gotten to where they are right now. But they're now only a half game back behind the Angels, um, and that's a, it's actually a game behind in, in the win column, you know, for whatever that means. Uh, but they're at a position now. Are they at a position now where in previous years they 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 would or should have pursued that wild card, um, you know, I guess rather aggressively. Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously the A's financial model is different than every other team. They've won before and it hasn't attracted fans. So this applies to them a little bit less than other teams where you think that, you know, getting into the playoffs might cause 30,000 people to show up at the ballpark. But even the A's could use a significant attendance boost. And, you know, if they get into the playoffs, they'll get some attendance boost. Um, and I think in their situation, if they were, uh, you know, if this was back in 2000, 2001, 2002, you know, the last times that they were, you know, really good and really contending for the division on a regular basis, uh, we would have seen them, you know, trading off prospects to try and run down the Angels uh, in order to get back into the playoffs and capitalize on a playoff berth. Right now, you have to look at it and say, okay, you know, we're uh, a half game behind the Angels, but most likely we're not going to catch Texas. We're six games behind them. They're clearly better than we are. Uh, how much of our farm system, how much of our young talent do we want to surrender uh, when all we're really going to do is jockey for the right to stay in this one-game playoff against the Angels? You know, maybe we'll pass the Angels, but it doesn't get us anything. You know, we're still going to play the Angels in a one-game playoff game. Maybe the Orioles with the Angels totally fall apart, but most likely you're playing the Angels in a, in a game to decide who gets into the division series. Uh, you know, passing them only gets you home field advantage in that game. You still have to face most likely Jared Weaver uh, or maybe C.J. Wilson. That's not a whole lot better. Uh, do you really think you can win that game? I mean, you know, maybe you're 30%, 35% favorite to win that game. How much of your farm system do you want to give up to bet on one game where you're an underdog? So at this point for a team like the A's, uh, and again, you mentioned there are some exceptions to be made with them, but generally speaking, would their, um, their situation where they are relative to that second wild card spot, is the idea to play out the season, um, certainly trying to win games, and if you get that second wild card spot, you get into playoffs, then so be it. That's excellent. But at the same time, don't necessarily sacrifice anything to do that. My guess is this is going to kind of create like almost a new category of trade where we're going to see guys who didn't have much trade value in previous years, um, you know, 
maybe going for getting traded, but not going for much in the way of prospects. So, you know, we've seen rumors like Kevin Millwood's the guy that teams are talking about. I mean, Kevin Millwood's the guy who signed a minor league free agent, uh, a minor league contract each of the last two years. No one really wanted this guy. I mean, he's not been a, a coveted pitcher. He's not pitching all that great. He's, you know, a marginal stuff guy who you probably wouldn't want to start in a playoff race. But if you're a team like the, you know, the Nationals who really needs to hang on to that division uh, and keep off the Braves or, you know, uh, even one of these teams that's fighting for uh, a wild card spot but doesn't want to surrender a prospect, kind of like the Orioles, uh, Millwood might be a guy that interests you. So you give up some, you know, low-level arm that you're not going to miss that much, uh, and you get back, you know, a guy who you can sell to your fan base and say, hey, look, we're trying. We're not going to punt the future, but we're not, you know, ignoring the fact that we're in the playoff race either. I wouldn't be surprised if there was more, you know, marginal guys who didn't cost real prospects that started changing teams so that these organizations could say, hey, look, you know, we are trying, but we're not going to punt the future to chase a one-game playoff. Right, and so what? So is Kevin Millwood essentially is like, is his, that that style of player, he's better than John Lennon is is what he offers? That's kind of the idea, yeah, or even just depth. I mean, you know, in the Nationals case, they might be shutting down Steven Strasburg or skipping starts, or, you know, there's a chance that, it, you know, a team with a, a healthy rotation can have a guy come up with an arm injury after the trade deadline's passed. So they could, you know, acquire Millwood just as insurance and say, hey, look, you're going to pitch in long relief, and then if someone tweaks their arm, we're going to stick in the rotation. All right. Um, now, we, we mentioned uh, all, all this is kind of part of this conversation, but I want to maybe take a brief uh, detour here to, dis- to discuss the A's themselves. Um, I don't know where they were a month ago, I'll be honest. Maybe you do. You probably do. But as of, you know, as of now, as we mentioned, they're only a half game behind the Angels. I know Chris Carter has been really good uh, in whatever, like, 40 plate appearances, uh, and I know that, generally speaking, Josh Reddick uh, has been better than we expected, but that's been going on the entire season. What's different about the uh, the A's over, whatever, the last month, last month and a half? That What's different about them now that, than before? You went up to this guy healthy and decided to hit like crazy. I, mean, I think over the last uh, week or two, he's been uh, unbelievably good. And hitting for a lot of power, and you know his presence in there really changes that lineup a bit. Gives them someone besides Reddick that can really scare you, who can hit the ball over the wall. Um, you know, Cespedes is a, a pretty big uh, cog in that machine. And you know, with Tommy Malone pitching well lately, uh, he threw, you know a ten strikeout shutout against the Yankees the other night, which I don't think anyone would have expected given Malone's stuff and the Yankees offense. Um, you know, their pitching's been good, but it's really the UNS Cespedes is the guy who makes that offense work. Uh, you know, the difference at least between being below average and being good enough to score runs to win a bunch of run, one-run games. Is there a sort of, I mean, do we know this beyond any sort of anecdotal evidence that, like, one impact bat in the middle of a lineup has a ripple effect? I mean, I know that it seems like whatever research has been done on protecting a batter, you know, um, that general, that effect generally seems not to exist. But maybe what I'm mentioning here is something different. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a tipping point, at which point, uh, you know, if you have a bad offensive team with a good pitching and defense and you lose a lot of close games, you know, that marginal impact of that extra run is pretty large. If you're losing 4-3 to three all the time and then you get that run that ties it up and sends it to extra innings, you're going to win a lot more games than if you're constantly losing 4-3 to three or 3-2. Three to two. I do think for these low-run scoring teams who play in, you know, pitchers' parks with good defenses, um, we see that there is a tipping point where one hitter who kind of makes a significant impact offensively can alter their win-loss record more than, you know, on a team where it's 10-9 to 9 all the time and, uh, you know, the the differences in run scoring are larger from game to game. So when you're playing a lot of low, close-scoring games like the A's are, I mean, all four games 
that they beat the Yankees this weekend were by one run. Uh, that one back can make a difference. And and you think that that one run uh, is is beyond random somehow, or do you think that you know the A's? Uh, yeah, I saw David Weirs or Wires. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but I think it's David Weirs who writes for for Rographs. He mentioned. On Twitter, he said, I don't know how the A's are winning all these one-run games. Well, my response, I guess generic response would be, you know, it's probably largely random. Is there something besides randomness there? No, I mean, I think we understand that teams are uh, generally going to win about 50% of their one-run games or regress back towards something along those lines. But I think the idea is that if you're playing a lot of one-run games, uh, that there's more of a game to be made from having that volatility where, you know, if you have a Yohannes Suspidus in the lineup and he can hit a home run, uh, you know, he can change the game and get you that win versus if you're playing a lot of uh, games where you win big or lose big, a one run, home, you know, a home run's not going to have the same marginal impact on the wins and losses. So if you're in that position where you're already playing a lot of one run games, I think there is an added benefit to, um, you know, adding that hitter or adding that player who can make a, make a difference versus if you're a team that plays a lot of games uh, in a higher scoring environment where the the games aren't often decided by one run. Now, over the first uh, month or two of the season, it seemed like with Cespedes, anything that was middle to middle in, that was he, he was able to punish those those sorts of pitches. But uh, a pitcher with a good slider, if, if he was able to start it in the middle or, or outer half of the plate, uh, that was giving Cespedes a lot of trouble. I, is that not the case? Is he adjusting? Is he laying off more? You know, I'll be honest, I haven't looked at his swing plot lately and don't know exactly which pitches he's swinging at. But I think we've also seen that, you know, this kind of hitter, uh, Adrian Beltre has been that exact type of hitter for 15 years. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, pitchers continue to throw him inside. I'm not a major league pitcher. I can't say why they continue to do that. Uh, I think if I was a major league pitcher, I would throw these types of hitters nothing but sliders down and away. And, you know, if they walk, more power to them. And they have to prove they'll be willing to take those pitches before I stop throwing them. So, um, whether Cespedes is getting better at laying off those pitches away, uh, or if major league pitchers have just uh, stopped being smart enough to keep throwing the ball there, I can't say for sure. So what's the line then between Adrian Beltre and Alfonso Soriano, who seems, you know, who who at his peak uh, was was rather good, but that peak maybe, maybe uh, was not as long lived. Yeah, I think with Soriano, what we saw is an inherent inability to recognize a breaking ball. So Soriano could always hit a fastball, and it didn't necessarily, the location wasn't as important as the type of pitch. And I think we do see with a lot of these kind of 4A hitters, these guys who come up who can hit a fastball and they can't hit anything that moves, uh, and you can just bust them in with breaking balls and they're going to look hopeless. And so I think with Soriano, uh, you know, curveballs and sliders were a huge problem for him. Um, Beltre can hit curveballs and sliders. He just has a, a location in a certain part of the strike zone, or in his case, not in the strike zone, that he swings at too often. Uh, Josh Hamilton has kind of the same thing. Um, but they have really good hitting skills on all kinds of pitches. They just struggle to swing at pitches they shouldn't swing at. We, um, we started off by talking about um, the effects of the second wild card uh, on how teams might might handle their business at the trade deadline or nearing the trade deadline, we talked about it at a conceptual level, uh, a little bit um, in specifics with the A's. Um, I'm questioned though. Uh, I'm curious though as to how, um, getting into more specifics, how this is going to affect movement of players. Um, you know, maybe the top end players like like Zach Greinke, uh, Zach Greinke, Cole Hamels, um, and then you know Matt Garza, Ryan Dempster, uh, and some other names we've seen um, we've seen recently. 
Well, I think Matt Gardner was going to the Braves. Uh, that thing reported is almost done, and that will probably that trade may be done by the time you post this podcast. So we can probably cross him off the list. I think Debster's headed to Atlanta, um, but I do think that you know some of these other names. Uh, the Brewers are probably uh, a little more hesitant to begin selling than they would be without that second wild card. Uh, if there was only you know one wild card in the old system, they might have already decided, hey, look, we're just uh, hopelessly out of this thing. Uh, let's go ahead and move Granky. I think the fact that they're, the second wild card is around is going to probably keep them uh, to hold on to Granky for the next at least couple days um, and kind of let it play out maybe even until the 28th or 29th before they really start seriously shopping him. So I think that one's going to go down to the wire. Um, but I do think that you know most teams at this point kind of have an idea whether they're buyers or sellers. The Phillies have clearly moved into seller mode. They'll sign Hamels if he'll uh, if he'll stick around in Philly, but if he doesn't, they're going to trade him. So I don't think there's that many more teams on the bubble that don't know what they're doing. Okay, yeah, and actually, uh, you're you're precisely right. It, it appears that the deal is actually for Ryan Dempster. Um, that is not what I said. I think you might have said Garza, but I I also was perhaps wrong. In any case, okay. it is it yeah. is for Ryan Dempster. Whatever, and. Uh, um, do we have a sense of who's going the other way? I haven't heard that. Yeah, uh, right. But you did, you, you did call me 20 minutes ago, and that might have come out since you called Yeah, right. No, I'm looking at uh, uh, MLB Trade Rumors, always a good source for this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and it does appear as though it's not entirely clear. It does say they, acqu- they have acquired him. Uh, okay. But, but I guess it's... Uh, it, was, it was one of those almost done when you called. I was pretty sure it was going to be done at some point during the call. The timing of this podcast is a little unfortunate, I guess. Well, what do you want? I, I, I didn't consult with the Braves, I guess, beforehand. Right, you should have. Call all 30 GMs before we record, especially next Monday, because we're going to be the day before the trade deadline. We should just call every team and be like, hey, we're about to record a podcast. Put a hold on all your trades. Yeah, could you do that? Could you? Yeah. yeah. It actually does seem that, um, I don't know if it's specific teams or if it's just the way trades are done in general, that some teams do announce these sort of things at rather unfortunate times. Yeah, it's awful. I think a couple of years ago, they, all the GMs decided just to screw with the baseball writers and start announcing trades at 2 a.m. Eastern. Uh, and that's like, you know, for a while there, almost every deal broke in the middle of the night. The Carl Coffer contract, I mean, just all these deals uh, were, you know, very late in the evening, middle of the night. Uh, they just didn't want us to be able to sleep, and they hated our traffic numbers. Now, um, you as a, the managing editor, of course, uh, the, uh, the onus falls on you to, to be available to write these if no one else is, uh, if no one else claims it. You understand that, right? Yes, but last year I found a really good way around that, and I got leukemia, which meant I wasn't available. Yeah, so, the, old, the old leukemia trick. Yes, right. Oh. It's the oldest trick in the book. It is. That's right. Actually, yeah, that's, uh, uh, I, I believe in one of Plato's discourses, uh, Socrates talks about uh, getting uh, a secret to getting leukemia so you don't have to write baseball trade deadline, about baseball tra- uh, trade deadline deals. Um, yeah, it was all one big ruse that I didn't want. I didn't want to write about the deadline last yeah. year. So no, I get the it. hospital I went. Right. So uh, yeah, but this year, uh, I don't know. Maybe you have to, uh, you know, maybe write twice as many of them. Uh, yeah, maybe. Or I'll just get the house to diagnose me with lupus. <laughs> uh, yeah, hilarious. All of that uh, talk. Um, let's see. Uh, but it's not. Oh yeah, we're seeing maybe Randall Delgado. Does that make sense? I mean, Dem- Dempster's not like a front front line, although he's probably better than uh, at least in his win loss record has has shown. Uh, we've seen uh, front line guys over the last uh, three four years get like a uh, maybe a couple B plus uh, type type prospects and then something a little bit lower down. Dempster's maybe 
like uh, two or three guys, maybe a, some somewhere in the B range, but not not too uh, not too far above that. Yeah, I mean, I think Dempster's a good, not great pitcher. I mean, he's not a number one, but he is a you know solid above average strike thrower who gets ground balls and misses some bats. Uh, he's definitely a guy you are okay starting in the middle of your rotation in the playoff series. And I think for the Braves, you know, they're only three and a half games behind the Nationals in the NL East, and so they're one of these teams on the bubble that we've talked about that can go from wild card to division winner that has significant incentive to try and make that move if they can, especially if the Nationals are serious about shutting down Steven Strasburg. They have to see that they have an open door here and they can, you know, potentially make a move on the NL East. So, you know, Delgado's a back-end starter prospect. He's not a guy that you're going to, you know, he's going to turn into the best pitcher in baseball that you're going to kick yourself for trading. Um, you know, he's the the years of team control at a low price are nice, but the Braves are really good at churning out uh, those kind of back-end starting pitching prospects on an annual basis. They don't have any lack of depth in pitching in the minors, so um, I don't think the Braves are going to miss Delgado all that much, especially if Dempster can push them uh, from wild-card contender to division winner. And we, we mentioned some of the, the players, I mean, in this case, Ryan Dempster, who's on the move. We mentioned some players who could conceivably on the, uh, be on the move uh, between now and the, and the trade deadline. And, of course, you know, um, August is the uh, that's the uh, there is uh, trades that are still allowed, but they uh, required players to go through waivers. Um, with regard to your trade value series, we discussed some of the players at the top of that. Um, I'm curious if there were any names um, who sort of uh, snuck up on you or surprised you that maybe appeared either uh, closer to the top of the list or. Or once you sort of looked at their contract details and their current value, um, if they uh, ranked more um, more lowly than you would have expected. So when I did the initial pass of the list, uh, I had just enough to, I think, at 12 or 13. You know, he's not having a very good year, but he's still under contract for three more years with a total of, like, $45 million. He's 24, 25 years old. He's one of the best, you know, young players in the game. He was an MVP candidate last year. A couple of bad months, I wouldn't have thought had torpedoed his value all that much. And then I actually started talking to people in the game, and uh, what they were willing to offer for Justin Upton wasn't anywhere near what I would have expected. Uh, and I think, you know, this is one of the things that I'm learning is that trade value can uh, change a lot quicker than I had previously anticipated last year. I think probably one of the worst calls I made on the list was having a Baldo Jimenez, I think, at number 26, uh, a couple of weeks before the Rockies essentially shipped him off because they were tired of him. And they got a couple of okay pitching prospects in return, but nothing like you would expect from a guy who rates you know, in the middle of a trade value list in the top 50. So um, I think what we've seen is that the a player stock can fall really fast. And, you know, Ricky Weeks went from being uh, in the top 10 to off the list. Ryan Zimmerman went from being in the top 10 to off the list. Hanley Ramirez didn't even get consideration for the list, and he was a stalwart of the top of, part of this list for the last few years. So um, I think what, we've, what I'm recognizing now in talking to major league teams is that their opinions of players can shift very quickly, uh, and it isn't so much a this guy's talented we're going to bet on the talent is uh, they really, you know, aren't going to give up premier players for uh, potential. I mean, they're going to give it up for performance. Um, and, in, you know, in some cases, like with Bryce Harper, uh, that potential is so overwhelming that he would demand a great return. But, you know, for an underachieving major league player, their trade value can sink in a hurry. Do you think that, and uh, I know this may not be the precise way to phrase this, but do you think that's the right way to do it? Like you mentioned with a player like Justin Upton, now there might be some sort of makeup concerns beyond it, uh, you know, beyond the the talent, um, whatever that talent is. But uh, you know, Justin Upton is also a player who's had excellent 
seasons, generally speaking, you know, going back to his age 20 season, and he's not that old, uh, do you think that it it would make sense to be willing to offer up more for a player like that? In the sense that I get is that teams are now beginning to think that the teams trading these young players know something that they don't know. So the Evaldo Jimenez thing might be a good example because he lost a lot of velocity, but his peripherals were still pretty good. Uh, and so, you know, from a, an outsider perspective, you might just think that the velocity loss wasn't that big of a deal and that Jimenez was going to rebound, and that's one of the reasons the Indians traded for him is that they thought they were getting, you know, the guy that Jimenez was a couple years ago. And then this year, the velocity still wasn't there, and he was terrible. And it's, you wonder if the Rockies knew something about Jimenez's conditioning or work ethic or, you know, personality or something that was going to lead to further problems than what we'd already seen. Uh, and it seems like teams are getting skeptical about when a guy like this goes on the market, if Justin Upton was, you know, what everyone thinks he is, then why is Arizona trading him? And that seems to be the, the consensus of opinion is when one of these guys goes on the market, it's a sign that there's something wrong with him, and therefore teams are less willing to offer uh, premium packages because it's not so much that they're uh, believing that the other team is misevaluating their players, it's that the other team has more information than they do. Right. There's a, I think there's an old Groucho Marx joke. He says, I, I would never want to belong to a club... Uh, that would have someone like me as a member. Right. Uh, this, this is sort of a situation where if a team is willing to deal the player, then that player is not someone for whom you want to deal. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that way in every case. I mean, Justin Upton would obviously get claimed on waivers, and the Diamondbacks have no problems trading him uh, at a certain price. But when they're going to go to market him as a premium young player and they want three or four premium young players back in return, uh, it seems like the fact that they're willing to deal him requires that they take a discount. And so um, the other team's arguments are essentially, hey, look, you know, if you want to move him, then we think that there's something defective about him that makes you want to get rid of him. Now, you, you mentioned uh, Upton, Weeks, uh, a couple other guys falling off the list. I'm wondering if there's anyone who you looked at and you're like, um, huh, this guy is, is more valuable than I assumed. Yeah, I think the guy that I would point to that was – higher than I originally assumed he would be is Jason Kipnis. He ended up at uh, 25, I think, uh, and originally I had him in like the low 40s, um, maybe 43, 44, somewhere in there. Um, but he was a guy, the more I looked at it, um, you know, he's just performed a lot better than uh, I think the expectations were. And so while performances and everything, I mean, you have a 25-year-old second baseman who's, uh, you know, a really good base dealer, hitting for power, drawing walks, and contact rates improved dramatically this year, and his defense is a lot better than people expected. So um, there really isn't too many things you can point to it in, in, uh, in Jason Kipnis and say, you know, this this is a flaw that teams wouldn't want to trade for him. Uh, he really does look very similar to a young Ian Kimbler. Uh, and Kimbler, of course, has been one of the most underrated players in baseball for the last five years. Um, and Kipnis, you know, uh, he's under team control for five more years. Uh, you know, two of those will be at the league minimum. He's going to make nothing. There aren't that many middle infielders who can hit for power anymore. Uh, and Kipnis is, you know, a 35 home run guy, but he's got above average power, um, and he doesn't have any flaws in his game. So, you know, a young player with a lot of team control who plays an up the middle position at a respectable level and can hit, that's a, that's a pretty valuable player, and one who ended up a lot higher on the list than I had originally assumed. Do you think that, that part of your sort of original suspicion or you know, maybe the why you would have underrated him is is because he plays second base. Yeah, and because I, you know, I, I hadn't watched Kipnis play a lot of second base before this year. I still haven't watched him play a lot, but I've seen several Indian games. Uh, he was a converted outfielder. He played outfield in college. Uh, not a super athletic guy in the sense that 
Um, he doesn't have a cannon arm. He does, he's not the kind of guy who profiles as a good defender. And when the Indians converted him to second base, there was a lot of skepticism about whether it would stick. And, uh, you know, so I think in my mind, I had the idea of Kipnis as kind of a, a butcher at second base, kind of a, you know, maybe not Carlos Baerga bad at the, you know, toward the end of his career, but a guy who, you know, probably couldn't play the position very well. And then I watched Kipnis and he's actually okay. I mean, he's not a Brandon Phillips by any means, but he makes the plays that he gets to. His range is okay. Um, you know, he turns a double play all right. So uh, there's no reason to think that Kipnis is going to have to move back off of second base. Uh, he might even be a, a slight asset defensively at second, and he can still hit. Now, um, with that said, uh, I want to get to now, uh, the pi- we're at the end of the podcast, so uh, people who want to, uh, who feel comfortable moving from uh, what might be called sort of uh, rote or orthodox analysis to just hear me ask questions about players uh, from I have irrational feelings, um, you know, people who feel comfortable with that should stick around. Uh, but uh, I've recently um, been uh, and become enamored Cameron, of Daniel Straley. I assume this is a name um, with which you're familiar. Daniel Straley was considered uh, to be sort of an organizational arm for the Oakland A's uh, out of the draft. I think he, he was he went to Marshall where he threw mid to high 80s. He since somehow added like four to five miles per hour to his fastball and is absolutely crushing or crushed double A and is now uh, has like a 211 FIP in the PCL, uh, which is n- not a sort of number that you're generally going to see after any substantial sample. Uh, I present to you Daniel Straley, Dave Cameron. Yeah, I'd like to apologize to fans of Daniel Straley and the Oakland Athletics because I think you've just ruined his career. Uh, I think if we go through the list of players with which Carson has been enamored over the last couple of years, it is not a very impressive list. Well, right. Charlie Brett, Blackman yeah. headlined the list. Well, I mean, well, you, well you know? Colby, Lewis, Colby Lewis was the first... Uh, major name, and Colby okay, so Lewis. Colby, Colby Lewis hasn't hasn't been bad. Certainly. He hasn't been bad. Charlie Blackman's actually, he, well, he got injured. That's the yeah. That's his right. problem. Well, yeah. okay. I think if we're going to say that there's a Carson Sestouli curse, the fact that the guy got hurt uh, doesn't dissuade well, that. Well, no, it doesn't. But listen, I present to you another name, and it's a it's a different brand. But Mike Trout, you remember that I went out out on a limb. You you did not go out on any limb. Everyone loved Mike Trout. You you yeah. You can't take any credit for Mike Trout. I I put him, but I I selected him third uh, on the in the, in our um, franchise player draft, and I was roundly yeah. criticized. Yes, roundly Congratulations for recognizing that an 18 year old who can hit in Double A is a talented player. Congratulations, <laughs> Carson. You are a genius. But I was I I exhibited courage. I exhibit <laughs> I exhibited stick-to-itiveness. Um, and uh, perhaps a bit of foolishness, uh, always a bit of foolishness, but just enough uh, to be able to make those yeah. bold decisions. You sound like you're applying for some kind of job. Yeah, I, I make bold decisions. But, I mean, okay. well, so who was that Red Sox pitching prospect you loved a couple years ago? He, uh, Stoli Pimentel, who is no, <laughs> it wasn't Stoli Pimentel, it was... Uh, <laughs> uh, some it guy was, who got a lot of ground balls. Yeah, Chris Balcon miller Yes, Chris Balcom Miller. It's right. possible that uh, Balcom Miller could be an, an asset in the uh, out of the bullpen. Yeah. Yes, it's possible. And then there was that Arizona State second baseman who's like three feet tall. Yeah, uh, Zach McPhee, I think. Yes, right. So it's not so it's if, not a hundred percent gauge, but relative. You also have to adjust for. I mean, part of the reason that that these players, um, they're it's it, one derives pleasure from sort of investing in them is because of their relatively sort of um, low-level status to start with. 
So consider right. that. You, you enjoy finding guys who are performing over their talent abilities, hyping them to the moon, and then watching them crash and burn. That's a harsh summary of, of what it is I do. But in any case, in any case, what are your thoughts on Daniel Straley? Uh, I actually think Straley's going to be okay. I think, uh, you know, you see what Tommy Malone's doing in that ballpark. Uh, there's no question that the Oakland Coliseum hides a magnitude of sins uh, or a multitude of sins. I think it's a multitude of sins. Uh, and so, you know, if you're a, a guy without, you know, elite stuff, uh, pitching in that ballpark can do really good things for you. Straley is a guy whose stuff has certainly gotten better, but he still has not profile as any kind of ace. Um, but I do think that, you know, command and uh, the ability to throw strikes in, in Oakland is a probably the most valuable skill. Um, and so I think Straley's going to probably, you know, be an average, maybe slightly below average starting pitcher in a neutral context, but in that part he can easily run an ERA of three and a half. Right, and it's, uh, it is a multitude of sins. It's uh, Peter 4-8. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, there's a, uh, there's a friend of mine who made a quote a few years ago. He's a big, uh, movie buff. Yeah. Like, he went and saw some movie, and it was, he said the movie was terrible, but his quote was that Kara Knightley covers a multitude of sins, and that was his review of the movie. Yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, uh not a bad observation. Actually, right. but uh, anyway, that's where that uh, that quote sticks in my mind. I don't have any idea what movie that was. I don't think I ever saw it. But that's when I think of multitude of sins. I now associate it with Kira Knightley. Uh, it could be Love Actually. It could be most movies Kira Knightley's in, really. Okay, I don't know that I've ever actually seen a Kira Knightley movie. So, well, you know what her face looks like, right? Uh, I'm assuming it's round. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's a nice sort of face that generally heterosexual men like looking at. That's what she has going for. Yeah. It, oh, but since we're since we're speaking of movies and have gotten totally away from baseball, yeah. I just want to say I watched a movie this weekend called Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, which I actually kind of enjoyed. In the it's a romantic comedy. It's somewhat predictable. You kind of know where the plot's going to an extent. Yeah. Uh, but it, the, the the language was uh, okay, and it was a little different than most of those romantic comedies that you watch with your wife. But there's one scene in Salmon Fishing in the Yemen which is so absurd and so ridiculous. It would be like Nephi Perez coming out of retirement to play for the Rangers and hitting a walk-off grand slam to win the World Series. I yeah. mean, it is the most absurd scene in the history of movies. Well, that's a case of hyperbole right there. Is that with you and McGregor, that movie? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Emily Blunt? Blunt, Is that right. a person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a person, I think, yeah. Okay, yes. I think she was also in that movie. Um, uh, what's absurd about it? Do you care to elaborate? Well, I don't want to spoil the thing for people who haven't watched. I'll just say that Ewan McGregor plays a bumbling nerd who you might expect to read fan graphs. And then at one certain point in the movie, he turns into James Bond. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, that that's what happens in, in the romantic comedy genre, isn't it? I mean, that's a uh, thing that, that does happen. Well, first of all, you have to believe that Ewan McGregor is a nerd. That's a... Um, yeah, no, but he does a really good job of playing the nerd, and you buy into the nerd character, but he, the transformation is not complete. He's only James Bond for, like, three seconds, three and seconds. then he reverts back to being a nerd for the rest of the movie, and you're, it's almost like you're just not supposed to remember that for three seconds, nerd guy was an amazing superhero. Right, all right. Well, noted. Um, and I also wanted to note that uh, with regard to... We, we discussed Multitude of Sins, Peter 4.8. Uh, I believe it's... Uh, during the uh, Matthew, the section that's the uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, yeah. At one point, uh, 
what Matthew somewhere seven. It might be Matthew seven, the uh, the parable of the the moat and the beam. You familiar with that? Uh, I don't think I've ever heard it called that. Which parable are you referring to? Well, it says, uh, "Don't censure your brother for having a moat in his eye, because you, 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 while you have a beam." Oh, in no, your it's a log and stick. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. yeah different so, translations. Yeah, I think it's more, right, it's more commonly referred to as if you have a, you know, a log in your own eye, don't point out the stick in your brother's eye. Yeah. Right, right, right. But I was thinking, um, not only is one of the benefits of casting the beam out of your eye, you know, or the or the or the log. Not only is one of the benefits that you'll then have, you know, uh, purity and thought and deed, Cameron, but also, hey, free log. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Uh, so I will ask, what translation calls a log a moat? Because uh, to me, those are very different things. A moat, a moat and a beam. A moat and a beam. A moat. That's the King James, the it's original like King what James. You, that's what you surround a castle with. It's like no, 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 no. M O T E. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was trying to think of like some guy laying a beam across the moat and not getting eaten by no, animals. No, it doesn't make no no moat is like a like a dust a tiny piece a speck. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, like a, mo- a moat of dust. A moat of dust. You might hear. That's the thing people say. Uh, not yeah. not people I know. Well, you know, uh, I don't know pre- precisely the the dates of um, the composition of the King James Bible, but what? 17th, 16th century, 16th, yeah, 16th, 16th century. Yeah. Um, so if you knew anyone from 16th century England, then maybe then. What if it is? They're probably not talking. They're dead, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so okay, I think we've reached the sort of <laughs> logical conclusion of of, of the uh, this episode. But um, uh, do you have any bold predictions before we go, Cameron? Uh, let's see. My guess is that uh, Cole Hamill's re-signs with the Phillies, not a super bold prediction, I guess, and that Zach Granke gets traded to the Texas Rangers for a package that includes uh, neither Jerickson Profar or Mike Holt. Really? Oh, and and I think Hanley Ramirez gets traded in the next week. To the Boston Red Sox for Carl Crawford? No, not to the Boston Red Sox. I think that, the, that offer was, uh, or that rumor was uh, roundly killed already, but I do think Hanley Ramirez gets traded. Okay. And you think that neither you don't, you don't even think Mike Olt is in a deal going no, back? No, I, I think at this point Olt and Profar are both off limits uh, hmm. in terms of dealing for a rental. So I don't know Neil Ramirez, Leonis Martinez. Yeah, there you go. I pitched on uh, on ESPN last week when they had me write five trades that should happen in the American League. I think the package I had was uh, Leonis Martinez, Neil Ramirez, and uh, Rugned Odor. <laughs> Yeah, him. I know him. Yes, I know. About I, him. I only I only pray that I pronounce that even close to. No, I, I mean I know who you mean. I I don't know who that. I mean I don't know that person. I don't know how to say that person's name. But yes. Well, all right. Hasn't Ramirez had sort of a down year? Isn't he? I mean, is he, he better than he, Willie Peralta? He struggled badly in the PPL, but they demoted him to Double A about a month ago, and he's pitched pretty well since. Uh, and a lot of his bad year in the PPL was. Uh, uh, not necessarily, you know, walks and strikeouts, but the more uh, flimsy parts of pitching. Right. So I think that there's still hope, especially with this good stuff. And if you went to the National League and got out of the PCL, you know, you never know what could happen. The National League isn't that far from the PCL. And then I guess with Martin, though, like the, the I mean, the the Brewer, uh, Braves, sorry, Bre- Brewers have like four major league caliber outfielders right now. Well, I don't know. Are you considering Carlos Gomez and Nigel Morgan in the package? Well, they're sort of together. 
And then they have Aoki, and then they have Corey Hart, who's maybe now their first baseman, but still. Yeah, I think uh, they need a center fielder. <laughs> you think what? They, they need a center fielder. Corey Hart uh, or, uh, you know, um, Niger Morgan and Carlos Gomez are both pretty terrible right now. Yeah, although the the Rangers made it to the World Series last year with a combo package of Andy Chavez and Craig Gentry. Yeah, but everything else on the Rangers was amazing. Yeah. Noted. Wait, uh, is there a shortstop in the Rangers system besides Profar? Uh, I mean, any I shortstop? There's probably, probably like 12, right? Like, they need one of each team. So. Yeah, uh, right. But, I mean, it, it it strikes me that any that any package going to the Brewers would have to include some kind of shortstop. Well, I don't think that you want to be that short-sighted when you're making a trade. I think you just want to get the best value possible. And if the Rangers don't want a good shortstop, but they're offering you three other good prospects, you don't want to be like, nah, I'm going to trade for this you know, slightly better version of shortstop and not get the other good prospects. Right. All right. All right, well, uh, I'll let you go, Cameron, because you probably have more important things to be doing. But thank you for joining the podcast like you do every week. Thanks. I look forward to our new segment, uh, Cameron and Sestouli Talk the New King James. Yeah, right, yes. Yeah, the, the, the that's going to be it. We'll just start off the podcast with that next week. Uh, that's just, a good idea. Way to drive readership away in record. Yeah, numbers. yeah, right. Well, behold the, the lilies of the valley, Cameron. <laughs> they, neither, they neither, what, toil nor weave? Yes. Yeah, all right. All right. That's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Testuli. This has been the King James Bible edition of Fangraphs Audio.